Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 27th, 2021. Regular viewers and listeners know we talk a lot on this show. It's rather unfortunate, but uh, it's the nature of things. We talk a lot on this show about race, racism, particularly in the United States. We've had so many shows about it recently. Uh, Connor Town O'Neill was on the show last week talking about uh, monuments in favor of white supremacy in the South. He has an interesting new book out. Keith Boykin, very well-known CNN commentator, law professor, was on a couple of weeks ago talking about the end of white supremacy in the United States. Uh, Bill Steigerwald has a great new book. He, he was on last month about the experience for a white man of, of experiencing uh, being black in, in the Jim uh, Crow uh, South. Um, J. Chester Johnson on the Elaine Race Massacre in Arkansas, one of the worst massacres up there with Tulsa. Uh, Jonathan Rapping on mass incarceration and its racial and, and racist conditions. Uh, Adam Serwa, the New York Times uh, and New Yorker writer on the racism inherent in President Trump or ex-President Trump. Uh, and lots of shows also about the experience of being black and female and voting. Uh, Martha S. Jones was on the show recently. And also uh, Carol Anderson, my old friend, a very distinguished academic from Emory University, who is perhaps one of America's leading thinkers, historians, theorists on racism in America. Uh, we haven't had a show, uh, again, for better or worse, and something to celebrate on this about racism and children in America, but that's going to change today. There's an important new book out uh, by my guest, Kristen Henning. It's called The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. Um, uh, Kristen is, is talking to me from her home uh, on the D.C. Uh, boundary. Kristen, um, welcome. Uh, the, the subtitle of your book is, is, is quite um, troubling, how America criminalizes black youth. Um, talk to me about that. Does America actually criminalize black youth? Are all black youths somehow criminalized just because of the color of their skin? So there is indeed a pervasive fear in this country of black children. And that fear um, uh, translates into this criminalization, right? So in the book, I, I argue that criminalization occurs in three different ways. Um, at the front end, right, the criminalization of just normal adolescent behaviors. So I ask readers to think about what, you know, remember what it was like to be a child. Remember what it was like to raise a teenager. What were the things that teenagers do? right? Um, teenagers are impulsive and they are sensation seekers. They love their friends and they talk back and they challenge authority, right? We all did that, but we're also resilient and creative and, and the like. And so 
but what we see happening is those normal adolescent behaviors that we forgive and that we tolerate and that sometimes we even think are funny um, when they are committed by other kids are criminalized for for black children, right? So that's everything from um, every aspect of culture, from the clothes that they wear, sagging pants as criminal, um, to the music that they choose to listen to, the friends that they hang out with. Um, all of that is criminalized. So that's the first way, the criminalization of normal adolescent behaviors. And then the second real way that I, that I talk about that Black youth are criminalized is through sort of the law enforcement process, right? The ways in which Black youth are disproportionately subject to hyper-surveillance in their neighborhoods, in their schools, uh, aggressive policing strategies, and the like. So that's, that's a piece of the uh, criminalization. And I should really pause and note that that criminalization sort of gives license to or, or gives freedom to civilians um, to also respond to Black youth in kind, as if they were criminal, as if um, we need to call the police on them. And then the third way in which Black youth are criminalized is, is in the legal system, right? The We in our society decided that we would have a separate juvenile legal system for the prosecution of children who needed to be held accountable for their behavior. But we decided that that would be separate and different from the adult system. But we criminalize black youth because disproportionately, we are much more likely to transfer a, a child from that protected juvenile court space to uh, adult court, to criminal court, where they can not only be sentenced as adult, housed in adult uh, criminal jails and prisons, and subject to violence in those facilities. Uh, you begin the book, um, Chris, uh, with a comparison of two kids, um, one called uh, Jason and one called Eric. And there's this continual juxtaposition in the book between white children, particularly white boys, white adolescent boys and white adolescent blacks. Tell me about Jason and Eric and why they're so instrumental in uh, making your case that uh, America is criminalizing its black youth. Yeah, so I draw heavily upon uh, stories, or let me be clear, I bring in the research and the data for those of, of, of the readers who don't just want an anecdote or a story. But I think the story really brings to life the differences in the ways that, that Black and, and, and white children, to be quite frank, are, are treated. And so what I do in the book is I tell stories about young people that I represented. And I, from the outset, I... I you know, and just to, sorry, jump in here, Chris. Um, yeah. You're... Um... You're a professor of uh, law at Georgetown Law School, but you've also, uh, your, your career has been very much uh, involved with um, defending black youth. Absolutely. And thank you for asking that. That's absolutely right. So I am a professor of law at Georgetown, but even at Georgetown, I run a, a juvenile defender clinic right, a youth defender clinic, meaning that I take my third year law students into DC Superior Court and we represent to this day children accused of crime. Before that, I was at the DC Public Defender Service um, for a number of years representing children. And so that's exactly right. And so I draw upon these experiences with young people in, in, in a city like Washington DC, um, as well as some national examples to really drive home the point. So Eric, Eric was a really, um, 
is such a powerful, um, life-changing story for me. But I represented Eric, um, who was accused of possession of a Molotov cocktail. And he was accused of attempted arson in his school. And I will never forget hearing about this case on the news. The he was black, of course, Eric. He was right. black, of course, right? Um, and so I heard about his case on the news the night before um, I actually met him. And so I went to court the next day. And sure enough, as fate would have it, I got assigned to represent Eric. And it turns out that Eric was anything but an arsonist, right? It turns out he was a 13-year-old Black kid, right, who had been watching the news over, I mean, not the news, watching a movie over the weekend. He sees someone making um, a Molotov cocktails. He said, that would be cool. I should try to make something that looks like that. He runs into the kitchen. He grabs a bottle. He starts pouring in all kinds of liquids, bleach, pine salt, you know, uh, uh, liquids that are not flammable, mind you. And he takes a piece of toilet paper. How childish this is this? He takes a piece of toilet paper and he sticks it in the bottle and has it hang out as if it were a wick and he closes up the bottle. Well, we all know that this toilet paper is gonna burn out before it even reaches the cap of the bottle. Um, but he puts it in his book bag, he completely forgets about it. He goes to school the next day and they ask him to put his book bag through the metal detector. And a school resource officer says, what is this in your bag? Um, at which point Eric says, that's nothing, you can throw that away. And he goes on to class. Um, a short time later, officers show up, the fire department shows up and they say, um, and they arrest him for possession of a Molotov cocktail and um, arson. And so here's the kicker before I even get to Jason. Um, I ended up representing Eric for nine months in the legal system. Um, but a short time after I met Eric, I was giving a talk or was meeting with a group of folks and I shared my story um, or shared Eric's story with that group. And a woman came up to me after my talk and she said, my son did the same thing. Well, this was a white woman um, from New Haven, Connecticut. And what she said was that her son got um, placed in an advanced science class so he could explore his creativity, right? So here we have, it, that was just such an incredible wake up call, two kids doing the exact same thing and such a radically different response. Um, and then there's Jason you asked about. So Jason was one of my white clients. Um, and what is shocking is that I've been practicing for 25 years in Washington, D.C., and I've only had four white clients. One of those clients um, wasn't actually white. He just appeared white. And the other client, um, another client wasn't actually my client. I was actually just a pro bono assistance on the side. But so I represented Jason and Jason um, went, he was a teenager who crashed a college uh, fraternity party. And he crashed the fraternity party and drew a swastika. Well, he didn't. One of his friends drew a swastika on the wall outside of the fraternity after the boys had been kicked out of the party. Um, and so what was extraordinary, so they did get arrested. They came to court. And on the day that they came to court, they were uh, handcuffed like every other kid and immediately 
with the judge, without even knowing what the children had been charged with, rears back in his seat and says, wait, um, we need to remove these kids from handcuffs. Look at them and look at their parents. There's no way I'm possibly going to detain these kids after this hearing. And so they got um, released uh, immediately right there in the courtroom from handcuffs and ultimately were given um, within very, within two weeks, they were given a, uh, a diversion. Um, and so just the ways in which uh, we treat children radically. Yeah, different. and you're, uh, you also make the comparison, and, and, and people will be familiar certainly with one of these cases, with the, the Brock Turner case at Stanford right. University. You compare that to the case of Marcus Dixon, uh, a black uh, athlete who was accused um, incorrectly of race. Compare the Dixon and Turner cases, again, to make your point about how America criminalizes black youth. Yeah, so it's so complicated, right, to be a Black teenage male trying to navigate um, sexuality, right, um, and and learning what's acceptable and not acceptable behavior. So we need an entire, that's a whole nother show, right, Andrew, like a cultural, cultural shift about how, you know, uh, young boys engage with, with young girls and young women. But here's the difference, right? It is that the old adage, boys will be boys, and that we as a society have been so willing Right, we've seen it through politicians, and we've seen it uh, until recently with the, you know, um, with you know the rise of um, uh, Me Too, the hashtag Me Too movement. But um, for far too long, you know, we've lived with the adage "boys will be boys." That is, unless you are uh, a black boy, um, and so "boys will be boys" has been the excuse to let adolescent males and even adult males, um, you know to be quite frank, get away with or um, uh, to find it acceptable um, for them to be, you know, to mistreat women um, and the like. And for time athletes, you know, uh, college football players um, and the like were able to get away with that with rec rec reckless abandon. Um, well, certainly the, the Brock Turner case at Stanford uh, brought that to the national limelight. What about the the Marcus Dixon case. I wasn't familiar with this case. He mm -hmm. went on to become quite a well-known uh, American football player, but he was accused of rape incorrectly again. Yeah. And, and, and you suggest in the book that this, um, this highlights the profound racism built into the, the legal system when it comes to children. Yeah, so Marcus Dixon was, um, uh, interestingly enough, as a black male who was raised by white parents, and the white parents had both a, um, a black son and a white son, and Marcus was their adopted black son who was accused of, um, of rape. Now, you know, the, the debate is, did, you know, was it consensual? His, his unequivocal position was it was a consensual encounter and it wasn't until her father found out about it and became angry that she changed her story and accused him. And so he indeed was sentenced, um, convicted and sentenced um, to an extraordinary um, lengthy uh, sentence under, um, at the time, some um, Georgia statute. And even, you know, the Barkas's parents um, said if that had been their white son, it never would have uh, come out that way. And so it was the vestiges of, um, you know, the fears and this narrative that, uh, 
uh, black boys were a danger and a threat to black girls and to black, I mean, excuse me, uh, to white girls and to white female innocence, right? And so- And this spirit, of course, drives the book. You dedicate the book to the tragic stories of of Tamir Rice, of Trayvon Martin, and perhaps uh, above all else, uh, 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 Emmett uh, Till, uh, and you remind us of the, the tragic case of George Steiny. Uh, Stinney, yes. Uh, Stinney, the, uh, the youngest person ever to be put to death by the American criminal justice system at 14 uh, for apparently murder, raping and murdering two white girls, which he didn't do. So right. this has historic, tragic historical resonance, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. I say America has a long history of failing to treat Black children like children, failing to even see them as human from the era of slavery when children were the property of, you know, slave Chris, has anything changed much? I mean, obviously, um, America, fortunately, is not putting 14-year-olds to death anymore. (laughs) But um, is there a direct line between Steiny and, and Trayvon? Um, and Tamir Rice? So I would say absolutely. There is a direct line. Does it look different? Yes. Has America changed? Maybe it's changed in the ways in which we are explicit or not explicit about this race conversation and in our in our views about black and brown children. But the the sentiment and the undergirding narrative, I would argue, is still there, both intentionally and subconsciously. Um, subconsciously through the biases. And so the biases, when we talk about Tamir Rice, you know, he's the young 12-year-old boy in Cleveland, Ohio, that was shot within seconds when police arrived on the scene. And what the police officer said at the time was that he looked older, right? He looked older than his 12-year-old face. Well, even if he looked 14 or 15, that's certainly no excuse to shoot him dead. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, Chris, you know the criminal justice system as, as, as well as most. You're a professor at the law school. Uh, we've had a lot of discussion about policing in America. Uh, and we've talked, of course, about the issue of race and police. We had Alex Vitale on the show, who believes that America essentially needs to scrap its police force, reinvent it. But we also had your colleague Rosa Brooks from Georgetown Law on the show, who I think is has a more ambivalent, uh, measured, balanced take on the police. What do you think needs to change when it comes to, uh, shall we say, decriminalizing black youth in America in terms of police reform? So, I mean, I want to avoid the sort of polarizing language, you know, police or no police, and instead think about ways in which we can reimagine policing, um, which would necessarily um, narrow the scope. So what is it that police are uniquely uh, trained and equipped to do? What do we need them to do in society? And what are those parts of of policing or um, what responsibilities and tasks have we given police officers um, that that they don't need to do, that they're not best suited to do? So I think part of police reform is, you know, starts at the school um, and thinking about whether or not we are over relying on police for school safety. And so whether, you know, I, you know, I don't want to traffic in language like, you know, defund the police, but 
What, you know, can we remove police officers, the physical presence of police officers from inside the school system, right? That and that's what I, one of the things I found so shocking and depressing about your book is I hadn't quite realized um, the number of police uh, at schools. Uh, you know, my, one of my kids went to a private school. The other went to a large public Waldorf school. There was no police there. But I assume... In many, uh, many schools, especially, uh, uh, quote unquote, inner city schools, there's a very strong police presence, isn't there? Absolutely. And the data actually shows that police officers are more likely to be in schools that have a population of 75% African-American or more um, than they are to be in schools with a predominantly um, white uh, uh, student population. So yes, um, a lot of people are surprised by that, but police are pervasive in schools. And and we don't, I think we, we live with this false binary that the only way to keep our kids safe is to have police. And there is evidence-based research showing that there are alternatives, you know, increasing mental health services at schools, restorative mm -hmm. justice options, um, you know, uh, violence interrupters for those few schools, right, in our country where violence is really um, an issue. And I think the other thing that people don't realize is that um, the most people believe that uh, school resource officers were um, became popular after Columbine. Um, the shooting in Colorado. But the reality is that school resource officers were first introduced in the civil rights era, right? Um, after Brown versus Board of Education and were largely there uh, to stymie efforts at, at integration. Um, and so, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a false um, notion that um, school resource officers are in schools to, pre to prevent mass shootings and things of that nature. And in fact, um, there were school resource officers um, in, uh, in schools in um, both Columbine and Sandy Hook, but you know, school resource officers aren't gonna stop um, the mass shootings, right? So. Chris, your book, uh, it's up until this point, it would sound as if it's really a book about young black men, but it's also about women. We had a few months ago, Gillian Hernandez on the show, uh, she has an interesting new book out, The Aesthetics of Excess, which is a book about fashion choices of, of, mm. of young uh, Hispanic and, and black women as a form of empowerment. You talk about fashion and young women and sexuality. How, how does this play into the rage of innocence? Yeah, so, you know, and I'm glad you raised this question about girls, because when we talk about the criminalization of Black youth, I intentionally, um, it's, it's not a book solely about Black boys. It is absolutely um, integrated throughout about Black boys and girls. And one of the ways in which Black girls are criminalized is especially true in schools and around fashion. So the ways in which Black youth are perceived to be um, older, more mature, less innocent, more sexually aware than they actually are. Right? I mean, these are the the, the oldest tr racist tropes of all about oh, how black people are somehow more sexualized than white. Yes, 
Absolutely. And you, you mentioned fashion. And so in the school discipline context, right, um, you've got school uh, codes, dress codes, right, that have been uniquely targeted, um, you know, at the outset historically against girls and looking a certain way, but now have really been targeted at Black uh, girls and um, making the the suggestion that black girls' clothes are risque and sexualized, and that instead of reprimanding um, young boys and teachers, maybe who uh, uh, sexualize, who are doing the sexualization, right? Sexualizing uh, the image of black girls, they blame the black girls and they send the black girls home or punish them and and make them feel like outsiders and unwelcome by their clothing um, and the like. So there is absolutely um, uh, a part and parcel. I'm, I'm eager to read that book by Jill Hernandez. Now. Uh, yeah, I think you'd find it very interesting because it definitely supports your point. Um, meanwhile, whilst America is in the business of criminalizing black youth, they're increasingly fetishizing white youth. We've had all sorts of shows about how white America is overparenting. We had Matt Feeney on the show. Uh, criticizing the the overparenting of upper class white people in America, white children. Uh, we had the very popular writer Emily Oster on about how we should parent with data, become more and more obsessed, treat our kids and our family like a business school. Do you think that one of the problems with this quote unquote, you use this term, criminalization of black youth, is that? there is an increasing kind of cultural disparity in families between how white and black parents are treating their children? Hmm. Um, so, you know, we'd have to really unpack that. Um, I, I think that black parents, to be quite frank, are extraordinary and extraordinary in today's society. How do the, the numbers break down, Chris, in terms of... Uh, one-parent families in, 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 black, uh, in black communities versus one-parent families in white communities? You know, I actually don't have that data point. Um, and, and what I will say to you, though, is that black parenting, whether it's in a single-family home or a parent or, or, or two-parent home, is truly heroic. And that we often forget that black family structures includes a larger network of grandparents, of aunties, of uncles, and, and the like. And so even when uh, Black children are raised in a single parent home, they have uh, opportunity um, and, and they have often very good support. So I really, I, I wanna start from, from that place. Um, and when I say that Black parenting, it calls for heroism today, I'm, I'm not even saying that, I'm, lightly, um, it is because imagine what it must be like to prepare your child for the racism, racial bias, intentional racism that they will encounter while also not traumatizing them, right? With also um, at the same time, not uh, sort of feeding them fears about racism um, in ways that prevent them from engaging healthily with other people of all races. It is such an incredibly delicate balance. Do you have kids? I actually do not, uh, but I have nephews and and cousins and and all and all sorts that I raise, and all of my clients in some ways are my kids. 
Chris, it's not possible really to have this conversation in 2021 without mentioning Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the George Floyd uh, tragedy went global. What has been the impact, do you think, Black Lives Matter on young black people in America? Do you think that this is profoundly uh, reshaped, rethought their view of the law? Is it represent a new beginning? I think in terms of a contemporary movement, right, it is uh, an opportunity and a space for youth activism, right? In much the same way young people marched and spoke out in the civil rights era, it creates a space for young people. And actually in my book, when I talk about um, solutions and I, um, I, uh, I start off saying, if you wanna know what to do, how to fix this problem, ask the children, ask the black children, right? And they'll tell you. And I think we finally are, not finally, but re- a recurrence of this space where black uh, children, um, young activists have a, an opportunity to speak out. So I think that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has been very impactful in that way, in a very healthy uh, and useful way. Chris, one of the things I liked about the book is, of course, it's very dark, um, very troubling, but it also has hope. Your, your final chapter in The Rage of Innocent offers quite a lot of hope. You've been involved yourself in the Public Defenders for Black Lives, um, uh, and you you write in support of a number of different legal initiatives. Uh, I didn't know about them. For example, and I live in San Francisco, the, the Karen Act that would make false racially biased calls to police illegal. How much can the law itself with things like the Karen Act clean this whole uh, crime up, this, this, yeah. this way in which America criminalizes its black youth? Is it really, when it comes down to it, a legal problem that can be fixed? Oh, it is much, much more than a legal problem. It is the, I mean, it's really what we've been talking about, the narrative and the ways in which we have to shift the narrative about Black children. Um, But the law is important, and I think we cannot ignore that, that our way towards reform is a comprehensive, integrated set of strategies that push us forward. And one of those is law reform, right? Um, And so, and, and, and let's be clear, sometimes, and I think the Karen Act is an example, sometimes law is symbolic, right? Law is a statement of our values, right? And so the Karen Act is complicated, right? Because, you know, there are many people who push back and say, but why are we calling it the Karen Act that singles out white women with the name Karen? Um, And so, you know, um, without getting into that debate, uh, an act like that is very symbolic in that it is a call for all of us to stop and think, right? Um, why is it that we are so afraid um, of this uh, black or brown person? Why is it that we are so unwilling to share space and to share resources with, uh, with black children um, in society? And so why is it that we are so, we are conditioned to pick up the phone and call the police anytime you know someone violates our space, our um, our identity, transgresses our boundaries, um, as opposed to just being welcoming and open. And so I think uh, an act like this, which yes, you know, it's in San Francisco and a number of, of cities throughout the country, is a statement um, that we cannot 
use, uh, we cannot weaponize um, law enforcement as a way um, to, to maintain racial boundaries and the like. So I think that's just one of many. Yeah, and another one you mentioned is the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act. Very briefly, tell me about this, why you think it's so significant. Yeah, so this is actually at the federal front. And I should you know, say from the outset that most um, juvenile legal reform is going to come at the state level. But there is a role to play through the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act, one, um, through incentivized funding so that the federal government says to the states, um, you know, if you are not willing to monitor and to track your disproportionate mon- minority contact, uh, with the juvenile legal system, then we're not going to give you funding. If you, um, you know, it, it can embed within that strategies and efforts that each of the states might or must take um, to reduce that disproportionality um, to to achieve funding. And so it, it's the guidepost. It's the federal sort of guidepost uh, to the states um, uh, on how to address racial. Uh, inequities, among other things, right? Um, solitary confinement of young people and uh, uh, the commingling of mm. adults and children. In right. So, we, so, so we got two fixes. We've got the the legal fix. We, you talked a little bit before about police reform, but there's also a, a, a broader cultural spirit. I mean, that's bound up with Black Lives Matter. You you end your book on a positive note. You 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 talk about. Uh, movies like When They See Us, which was a film about, or which is a series, a, a TV series uh, about the uh, the Central Park Five. And you also refer uh, very positively to rappers like Kendrick Lamar, who is making art in defense of young black people. How important is this cultural response in your view? Oh, I think it's incredibly important. My goodness, um, Ava DuVernay, you know, her 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 work um, when they see us is truly a tour de force, and the number of people. Um, now that I, you know, I'm out, you know, I do talks and and trainings and workshops. The number of people who have a better understanding or any understanding whatsoever of of what happens to young black children who are uh, tried and prosecuted as adults, you know, subject to solitary confinement. Yeah. And this was very recent. I mean, we're not talking about Emmett Till. We're talking about something from the, what the what year was the the central. Park five. Uh, ooh, now you're asking me, was that in, um, was it 94? Yeah, so not long ago. And of course, uh, finally, I, I don't want to make this into a Donald Trump conversation, but, um, you know, Trump has been explicitly peddling racist imagery. He was one of the people who who went after the um, the, the Central Park Five. How worried are you, Chris, about the direction of the Republican Party when it comes to the uh, what you call the criminalization of, of, of black American young people. Absolutely. And, and just for the correction, that was in 1989 that the Central Park Five, but it was really important. The 90s are important because, as you said, you know, the Donald Trumps of the world then before he was president, you know, took out this, you know, uh, full page ad um, right. about how violent, you know, black uh, uh, children are. And so, yes, unequivocally, I think that um, politics has weaponized uh, crime and race to its advantage, right? 
And so, you know, we talk about Im contemporary immigration policies. If you let the, you know, uh, foreigners in, they're going to come in and, you know, kill us all. Um, and it was very much like that. The, the rhetoric was very much like that in the war um, against poverty, in the war against drugs um, uh, and the like. And it has an extraordinary impact, one, on our cultural understanding, on our deeply embedded psychological fears of black and brown children, that super predator myth right, that was made so popular um, in, you know, after, you know, uh, Central Park Five and um, by John DiUlio um, from Princeton University really caught fire, even though it was not scientifically sound and used by politicians, right, um, to limit and control and to divide uh, people. So I think, you know, this, this question of race and crime and adolescence is deeply um, tied to our politics. Um, and that's it's really, really an important question. It's an, not only is it an important question, this is a very important book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. Finally, we have a book about this criminalization uh, of, of young black people within the justice system, within the broader culture, and of course, amongst the police. An important new book. It's depressing reading in many ways, but inspiring at the end. Congratulations, Chris, on the book. You're at home in Maryland at the moment. Um, uh, as the book comes out, I hope you have some fun promoting it, but we're still not quite sure whether we can go out anymore. So people will have lots of time for reading. What else should people be reading in addition to your new book, The Rage of Innocence, Chris? So I'm going to, we, you know, we just talked about uh, Central Park Five. They are now the Exonerated Five. And uh, Yusuf Salam has a fabulous book out, Better Not Bitter, um, really uh, demonstrating the extraordinary resilience of young people who have been through just extraordinary challenges, right? Um, also, similarly, Centoya Brown-Long, um, her book came out uh, a, a little while ago, maybe a year or so ago, and it is Free Centoya, um, who was a young girl who was tried as an adult um, at the age of 16 and it's sentenced to an extraordinary uh, long sentence. And it wasn't until uh, very recently that she was finally uh, released um, back into the community. And so those are two books that I, that I, rec that I recommend. Well, Kristen Henning, the author of Rage of Innocence, real honor to talk to you. Congratulations again on, on an extremely important, relevant book. Everyone needs to read this to make sense of what it is to be a young black person in America today. Keep well, keep safe, keep fighting, and we'll talk to you again on the show in the not-too-distant future. Thank you again. All right. Thank you, Andrew. It's a great conversation.